0: Welcome to the World Wild Podcast. I'm your host, Miles Irving. And before I introduce this week's guest, Sonny Savage from Hawaii, I wanted to share some thoughts I've been having about previous guests that we've had on the podcast and about how they're all from a particular place. Now, that might be a very obvious thing to say, but I think the importance of what all of these people have to say is the fact that they are located in a particular place. And that so much of what we discuss and enter into on the podcast uh, relates to their particular experience of a particular place. Um, And I think the real value of what is shared is not so much in the particularity of of their experience in that place, but in the the general uh, thread that runs through all of these conversations, which is that people are finding a way to enter in to the living systems of the place where they live Um, whether it's Fred Provenza observing what goes on with other organisms or whether it's someone like Samuel Thayer who's looking at how he can work with the wild ecosystems where he is and um, see more food produced than if he wasn't there or as you'll hear with Sunny today that the amazing work that she's doing in Hawaii to try and address issues of species extinction in, in Hawaii through the instrumentality of, of really engaging with with uh, wild foods that are freely available there. That's a really interesting story that you're going to hear today. So the, the point is this generality that as we, as we work over many different stories and many people's experiences, what we're seeing is this common thread that it is possible to, to just open up um, our attention and um, our time and open our mouths uh, to allow what's going on around us to actually enter in whether it's entering into our mental and emotional life because we come to know and value these plants and generate memories and stories or whether it's you know the actual participation in our organism of, of the molecules and and so on of the of the uh the food plants and other organisms that we end up eating the point is that these examples are all showing us a way to enter in but there's another dimension other than just the spatial one that's involved in all this of course and that is the dimension of time we don't just need to be present where we are we need to be present in the moment where we are because that's where everything's happening um, and so with that in mind I just wanted to give give a, a really practical um, window as it were into my particular moment in the place where I'm standing right now um, and I thought I'd just round this thought off by um, describing to you <coughs> what it looks like when I step outside my front door at the moment on, um, on the uh, 26th of June it is today 2019 and I'm standing here in, uh, in a little hamlet in Kent England called Garland's Green outside my house looking out on a field of wild, not wild, of uh, organic oats. So interspersed into amongst, in, in among the oats, which is which actually the, the seed of the oats is, is swelling up now and, and becoming ripe. The flowers were fertilized by the pollen some weeks ago and now they're, they're uh, ripening up. And in between there's wild poppies, which will eventually ripen up and, and produce seeds, which are edible. There's chamomile there, which is a great flavoring for sweet and savory. Um, there are bramble bushes with flowers and with uh, some green fruit. Right in front of me, there's Russian vine. Um, and in the background, there's the sound of the builders, which has started since, since I've started recording, but I'm gonna just let it run. The Russian vine is in the same family as dock and uh, buckwheat. I've never found a use for it before this year, but this year I've been just nipping off the, the growth tips and they're quite tender and, and sour. They're a little bit like hop shoots, but with a slight hint of sourness. Also, there's some woody nightshade growing in among the, the brambles, and that's not an edible plant. It's mildly poisonous, produces a red berry that's kind of bitter and poisonous. But the flowers are just lovely to look at. They have um, the typical nightshade family flower structure of, of five sort of uh, pointed, well, it ends up looking like a star, like a five-pointed star. And then coming out of the middle, the stamens all join together like a yellow beak. So very, very pretty. And then lastly, there's, uh, well, there's two two things. Lastly. There's, there's some nettles which are just beginning to... Uh, they're female nettles, and um, the seeds are beginning to ripen up now. They have been pollinated here. Elsewhere, they're still being pollinated. Um, and then there's some grass, which uh, has been causing all my trouble and still making me quite croaky this week. Um, but it does seem to be uh, waning now, and, and the, um, the grass is beginning to fatten up with seeds in some cases where, where, where it has already been pollinated. Okay, so that's a moment of time here where I am. And, and I would just encourage you to pause and reflect about where you are now. What's what's happening now? Where where are you in, uh, in space? And where are you in time? Um, even if you're in the middle of the city, just know that there's soil beneath the buildings and beneath the tarmac and that there's signs of life springing up um, that you won't have to look very hard for. Okay, well, I'll now get on and introduce this week's guest. So it's a great pleasure to welcome to the World Wild Podcast, a forager from the other side of the world. Uh, Her name is Sunny Savage, and she's a wild food educator and currently wild food app developer, but she'll say more about that. Um, And she's authored a book on the wild plants of Hawaii. Um, I think um, there's probably a lot of different species there and and some the same but hello sunny we're gonna how are you doing
1: i'm doing fantastic it's a beautiful day on the island of maui and uh we're just heading into summer and and it's good to be alive
0: so can you tell those of us who um who don't know exactly whereabouts in the world you are
1: sure are you? i'm on the most remotely inhabited island chain on the planet, sitting directly in the center of the Pacific Ocean, um, the Hawaiian islands have five mainly inhabited islands, but there 's an archipelago that extends far, far um, from those main you know inhabited islands and um, we really have this incredible unique place here and we have it's really a it's a biodiversity hotspot and we have a really high percentage of endemism. plants that are found here plants and you know flora and fauna that are found here and nowhere else on the planet And so it's really cool because um, in addition to that endemism, we also have nearly every ecosystem on the planet here on these tiny little islands. So it's not just these white sand beaches and tropical oasis, but having that incredible breadth of diversity from the tops of the mountains that you know, are very, very high and feels like you're on the planet Mars or something and get snow all the way down to the ocean. So it's really a a magical place and it's a place that, uh, many people around the globe are gravitated towards, um, most importantly, I think because of the culture and the, the continuation, the perpetuation of the Hawaiian culture and the spirit of Aloha and how that, when you're here is alive and it's a real thing.
0: It sounds like you've got some pretty interesting foraging going on there with all that diversity of habitats. And, and does that tie in with the culture that you're talking about? Is there is there a strong culture around the forage plants, or is this partly something that you're pioneering?
1: Well, most of – there are very few endemic plants that are edible. It's actually a very, very small amount. So the first wave of migrations that came here were the Polynesian – voyaging crews who sailed from the South Pacific and and um, were the first inhabitants of Hawaii and became the Hawaiians. Mm-hmm. And they brought a set of plants with them, which we kind of locally call the canoe plants. And they brought the plants that would help them establish their culture and their way of life. And so those canoe plants are cultivated. Um, There's really only one that's kind of gone wild in the ecosystem, which is cuckoo nuts. Um, And then there have been subsequent colonizations and migrations of people through the years. And there were the waves of migrant workers that came to work in the sugar industry. And people travel with their favorite plants. So there were plants that were kind of brought in that, that era. And then now we just have this wave, this continuous wave of new, you know, typically weedy plants that come in through the plant trade, through nursery, through tourism, and people having seeds on their shoes and stepping Mm -hmm. off the plane and, and that kind of thing happens. So, I would say that the general lifestyle in Hawaii is where people are familiar with and kind of the idea of foraging for papaya and coconut and guavas, things that kind of go wild, you know, are feral in the landscape. All of them are non, you know, non natives. Um, maybe the coconut would be native, but not endemic. Um, but uh, then you have this whole next layer of kind of these wildcrafted plants that are, you know, really wild in the environment. And I would say that there's the practice of laulapaau in Hawaii, where that's the the medicine way and the, the the people are holding and practicing that, um, that knowledge, but foraging, I feel like I've been here for about 12 years now, and there weren't a lot of people using a lot of the plants that when I came, um, I, I was like, wow, we can do this. So it definitely existed, but not, not in a big way. So
0: I've listened to one of your talks where you you came up with a great quote that really leapt out to me. You you talked about a powerful paradigm shift that you love visualising, which would happen in households around the planet where they start eating the wild foods that are immediately around them. So am I to suspect that you're busy facilitating that paradigm shift right there,
1: where you are? Every every breath I take, yeah, yeah. I I. I have this mission that I've been on since about 19 when I had my aha moment. And yeah, I I do feel that uh, one of the fastest ways that we could have that kind of paradigm shift is if people just let their yards go and we let go of the pristine lawn environment. Um, So yeah, just right away, we could have so many people just letting Letting their lawns go and seeing what comes up and what food is is right there, growing in their own backyards.
0: I know. I just love rehearsing this with people when they've never thought about it before. I say, "Now listen, let, let me explain you: yeah? less work, more food." Yeah, yes. <laughs> <laughs> Does that sound like a good deal?
1: It sounds like a great deal. I know. And water. You know, these wild plants are—they're um, really the survivors in our ecosystems and are adapted to these changing global, um, environmental conditions and have less water needs and they're adapting to the pathogens in the environment. Um, and yeah, just that ability to share information. So having all of that right in your yard, and even if you're living in apartment buildings, you know, it's like reclaiming space of the old, um, pavement area that like come on let's get the community out and just take that pavement away and just let the bare earth Mm. you know Mm. be exposed again be free
0: i remember i remember going to see a friend in 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 beirut and he's like up on the fourth floor but he'd got some a little bit balcony area with some plant containers and yeah he had lots of south thistle growing out
1: yeah It's incredible. Yeah, the tenacity of those wild plants to find those spaces, you know, if we, if we create those spaces, thereby calling them in, they will find it. I mean, they, like, like I said before, they are the survivors, and they have that incredible strength, that life, that vital, ital strength.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, um, Another thing I picked up in one of your talks was some really interesting stats about the major agricultural weeds becoming um, resistant to glycosphate um, and um, you were pointing out how many of those major agricultural weeds are actually fantastic edible wild plants and um, you know we 're very conscious of that here like we, we have we have fat hen um, Ca our album growing in uh, in um, a lot of farms, and there's kind of wild mustard species and so on. But it's something that you just, you just have to stand back and marvel at, that we put so much resource and energy into actually fighting with something which is there to benefit us. And, and, and in spite of the fact that for hundreds, well, thousands of years, farmers have been um, probably pulling the plants out, but up until quite recently, I'm sure... Most farmers would have actually been eating those plants. They wouldn't have been as stupid as we are now. But, but in, this, in this time, we have, we have people spending vast amounts of money to, to put um, damaging chemicals on them. And it, it's just amazing to me that we don't, we don't just figure out, here is something with, with superior vitality. You know, the crop we're trying to grow couldn't put up with that kind of treatment. We have to prop that crop up in order to get it to produce what it does. Here's this plant that we throw everything we've got at it and it still bounces back. There it is again next year. And, and then it even becomes, as you were pointing out, resistant to these, these poisons that we put on. I just think at what point do we just say, hang on a minute, is this, is this trying to tell me something? You know, here's, yeah. this, here's this thing that's strong, and actually if I eat it, it makes me strong, and I'm using my energy against it instead of for this, this, this needs turning around, this needs to be reversed.
1: Here, here, and I've been so excited recently by um, research put out by uh, Philip Stark where – It just was published in early 2019, and it was through the University of California at Berkeley, and they took three different communities in the Bay Area, the San Francisco Bay Area, where there was a long-term historical use of pesticides. Um, So basically, they did soil samples. Soils showed glyphosate, lead, PCBs and they harvested the wild food plants in those areas and tested them over time and found that the cell tissues were not taking up any of the glyphosate lead or PCBs. So these plants you know, you had, we had started this little rant about the plants in the, in the farm areas yeah. that are becoming resistant to glyphosate. They're becoming super weeds. They're like, okay, spray me with poison. I don't care. I'm growing. I'm going to overstand your system. And now we have this new round of research showing that these weedy annuals, so it is a difference between perennials and weedy annuals, but these weedy annual plants literally not even uptaking this stuff into their cell walls. I mean, it's profound. It's really this, you know, front lines of evolution, um, and and also for me as an educator you know, for 20 years, I've been telling people, oh, don't harvest where the the plants have been sprayed. And of course, I still am going to, you know, be mindful of that and say that, but I'm a little bit burnt out by that, you know, because people are going to go to the store and spend their hard earned money to pay for something that's been poisoned. But yet there's this this cloud around our wild foods need to be in the most pristine environments. And, you know, so anyways, I just want to, you know, kind of bring this up that the plants are kind of evolving to overstand this onslaught of chemicals. I mean, they're, they're going to (laughs) survive, you know, they're going to survive. They are adapting. And so, yes, we don't want to harvest plants where they've been sprayed, but, at the end of the day, we all know that everything's connected you know that water is moving through the atmosphere and the mycorrhizal is connecting us all and it's all connected we can't get away from this shit we have created in our ecosystem you know it's everywhere and so just just really acknowledging and what a blessing these plants are as models as as we move through this sixth mass extinction on the planet and major you know global climate change issues and and how we have these beings these living beings as a model of how to how to do that how to adapt
0: you know i think there's a there's another Train of thought that comes out for me with the um, concern about where we harvest because of you know the environmental degradation and so on. I, I like to think that as more people um, start to embrace the plants and and to adopt a wild food diet, that that in itself will create a pressure, a, a sort of backlash against the indiscriminate use of these things because you know we have people using. Um, and I'm sure it's what you're talking about. We have people using these chemicals in in public spaces, and I, I feel sure that, that we'll reach a tipping point where enough people are saying, "Look, you, you just can't do this." Because, I mean, i i had to I had to at one point um, talk to my neighbours because they were putting ant powder out. And it's a slightly changing the subject, but like we we're quite keen on eating ants, and I've taught my kids since they were kids, tiny, I mean, that they can eat ants. So we've got ants crawling around in the kitchen. So that's okay, kids, just lick your finger and you can pick them up and they taste like lemons. But I saw the neighbour out with an ant powder thing to kill the ants and it was quite a funny way to get to know the neighbour, to tell them, um, look, can you not do that? Because the same ants you're doing that to, they'll crawl around and my kids will eat them and they're too young to understand that neighbours have poisoned the ants so they can't eat those ones. So we scored a victory there. They they kind of had to accept. No oh, more.
1: they did! good job. Oh, yeah. But
0: something like something like that becoming absolutely commonplace, so that the the, the person spraying all of a sudden is, um, you know, I mean, it's a bit like in I don't know what the thing is there, but like back in the back in the nineties, you could still smoke in a in a bar in England. So, so you go out and you come home stinking of tobacco even though you don't smoke yourself, and you just had to put up with that. Whereas it came a point where that was made illegal, and now you just think, that's insane. I can't believe I used to have to go out and breathe in other people's tobacco smoke. I like yeah. to think we're going to get to that point with these pesticides, that farmers and everybody else, they have so much pressure saying, look, sorry, you can't do that anymore. This is my air that you're spraying yeah. stuff into that the wind can catch, and you know this is, this is my groundwater, and actually these are our wild plants that you're yeah. spraying. It's a, a very interesting point in England. The law is really clear that the wild plants are not private property. Uh. So goods, yeah, this it, it's really it's really a nice thing. Most things have been in some way made um, subject to pro- property rights, but wild plants not. So like we have air, we have rainwater, and we have wild plants. Our, our common goods I think I think we're reached this point where those common goods are being defended um and and the guy with the with the pesticides just gets driven out of town <laughs> can't do it anymore. I'm really hopeful we're we're moving in that direction.
1: I'm really hopeful and I think it will be a natural progression for sure. Um because the climate change will push the issue um with crop loss and you know increased pests and and things like that, but I am hoping for that uh in on a a more rapid timeline here in Hawaii through the release of my app and I'm working on an app called Savage Kitchen I just actually sent the beta version to all of my testers last night and you know I'm dropping pins because it's an interactive mapping program for five invasive edible plants and has recipes and all, you know, learning to identify and quizzes and all kinds of things. Mm -hmm. Um, And I'm dropping pins on the map even if they are in places where there is spraying going on because... Firstly, people need to like, you know, you can read a book for years and try and figure out what a plant is. And until you physically go out and see it, you have somebody show you what it is and make that connection. Um, So, so I'm dropping pins so that people can see these plants because people are traveling along roadways and learn to identify them. And then that awareness is generated, like, come on. This is food loss. This is food waste. People are talking about food waste where you bring it home and you don't eat it and it sits in the refrigerator or we're throwing stuff away. But this food waste of our, you know, these wild plants that are in the ecosystem is another really big piece.
0: All you have to think about is if all of that wild food was being eaten, how much less stuff would need to be cultivated on agricultural land and and then think about the biodiversity loss and the habitat loss because we're now encroaching on more wild land to to promote agriculture and then there you go then it definitely it's food waste yeah yeah so maybe the um you could tell us a little bit about your your journey how did you how did you get into this stuff have you always been wild
1: <laughs> well i've always been wild indeed I grew up in northern Minnesota, just south of the Canadian border, and very thickly forested. I come from the Smoky Hills and my parents were back to the landers. So I grew up without electricity or running water. We built our own house, like including, you know, logging the lumber and skidding it out and the whole deal. Wow. Wow. So We had gardens and we tapped maple trees and harvested some wild berries. But it really wasn't until I left home at 18 and went and lived in Antarctica for a year where I was eating, everything was canned or frozen. And I kind of was like, whoa, my parents really did feed me good food. And I came home from that experience, and my mom had started to take some herbal medicine courses. This was kind of the the very early days of the internet, and people like Rosemary Gladstar, Susan Weed, um, here in you know in North America were were starting to make that information really available. And so I started doing, you know, making salves and tinctures and lotions and stuff with my mom. And I liked doing that. And it was, you know, it brought me a lot of joy. But then I literally remember reading in one of my mom's herbal medicine books that you could eat some of these wild plants. And it was as if the top of my head exploded off. And I was like, Oh my gosh, I was so pissed off at first. I was like, how come never? You know, nobody ever told me this? I've been walking around my whole life and there's stuff all around me and nobody ever told me this. So it was really that moment at 19 where it was just like, this is my thing. I found my thing. I'm like, this is what I'm doing. And ever since that point, I have been able to carve out a life and a career that focused around wild food and it's been just a phenomenal journey and taken me to so many amazing places and so many plants and so many cool people and um, but yeah so it's really I, I had my like epiphany my moment at 19 and although I was wild at heart that wild food knowledge was something that then i really honed Mm -hmm. from that point on but i had that foundation you know through my parents and through our lifestyle
0: that's cool that you your first point of contact was was with the medicines but it but it didn't really get you kind of that excited and and then it was to discover that you could eat the.
1: yeah i'm like let's eat this stuff we don't get sick in the first place you know and i mean that's a that's of course a little bit of an exaggeration because you know people get sick and that's a reality of our human existence but you know so many of our our modern day diseases are associated with lifestyle and so,
0: yeah, not preventable.
1: yeah 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 so yeah I I still enjoy working with medicines um but I really wouldn't consider myself a an herbalist I'm not trained as an herbalist but you know, when you are a plant lover, then you're immersed in, in that. And and so I certainly make some medicines for my family, but yeah. the wild foods are, are really, really what get me excited.
0: Yeah, I think I'm the same. I've picked up a bit of herbal medicine knowledge along the way. And, you know, when something goes wrong, I consult with a friend. Her name's is Monica Wild, actually, very, very apt name. Um, yeah. but she's my go to girl for, um, Herbal medicine advice
1: well, um, I came across her for the first time, yeah. listening to your your podcast with her and, and just adored everything she had to say. She's sounds amazing. like just a phenomenal human
0: yeah, and an elder i mean i think i think I think this um, this thing of just having you know you, you you talk about the gift of the plants that that really struck me in listening to you talk um, that we need to unwrap these gifts that, that are just sitting there and, and so on. But, um, I think the knowledge is a gift too. And, and, um, it is, um, it's a really sort of sober thing that we have a responsibility to pass that knowledge on, even though most of us that end up doing this tend to be slightly eccentric and <laughs> wave our arms around and get excited. And stuff. But it's actually serious business, you know, to, to, uh, to recreate knowledge that's been lost.
1: It's so exciting, and food is such a unifier. Food is such a beautiful way to connect with people, whether, you know, regardless of political affiliation, regardless of race, and regardless of so many different things, food is such a beautiful connector. And so, yeah, it is a lot about creating a new a new life way you know creating culture around these practices and you know with with my work with the invasives which is so relevant for living in an island because you know it's like if you go and show everybody your foraging spot and then there's only a couple of those plants you know that's not something you just share with everybody but the invasives are it's like, for me, it's like I look out on the landscape and the earth is speaking to us and I follow those lines of abundance and that's where the energy is happening. And so, I mean, we are in deep grieving in Hawaii. The loss of biodiversity here is really staggering. It's it's huge because we have so many unique species here as compared to other places that you know we're really losing them and that grief is so intense but at the same time i personally just have to be like okay you know this is this loss this massive loss that we're experiencing and at the same time it's like where am i going to focus and see where life is happening and life is happening On these lines of abundance where the the invasives are and so we can look to the places where they come from I mean they're sacred plants from where they come from I mean I personally it's like invasive species is the is the best descriptor everybody knows what you're talking about right away so that's important for language so that we know what we're we know what we're talking about but you know these plants are are really i feel like the gift we've all been waiting for <laughs> also i mean they're not they're pushing out and they're they're destroying endemics and it's a very real thing that i've sat and witnessed and it's only going to be the humans who are saving those the last valley of this and it's the dedicated people who are you know to save those those last three plants of that for some hope of some kind of, you know, this is our our diversity bank. This is the the bank of our store, our life on this planet. Um, But that said, there are a lot of humans, and I believe that we can feed this many humans and we can live in balance with the earth and the resources that we have. And part of that solution is through the invasive species because they are what are found in abundance. That is where the resources in abundance are.
0: Abundant, but also resilient, which um, I mean, we, we have um, a story, which I don't know if you have over there, um, called the magic porridge pots. And in the story of the magic porridge pot, Every time somebody takes a bowl of porridge out, they go back to the pot and it's just as full as it was before. So, you know, the issue of scarcity is we're afraid we're going to run out. But with, a, with an invasive species, they generally, it doesn't matter how hard you hit them, they bounce back. So it's, um, as you say, in, in a sense, it's the resource we've been waiting for because it's something that that is so full of vitality. It, it's even beyond what we were discussing earlier with the agricultural weeds. It'll... Um, it, it almost needs to be hit hard in order to stop it from going everywhere. And if you try to dream of a food source, that's what you dream of. You, you dream of something that you can, you can take as much as you like and it'll still come bouncing back. Mystery the voice is like a child, and you find, you find that living
1: key. Red and autumn, yellow
0: japanese knotweed which in japanese it's itadori which means strong plant and that's a medicinal plant for them and it's a great food um, and so on but um and then again we you know we have uh, garlic mustard i don't know if you have that there we don't native here but elsewhere it's it's highly invasive but that's a it's full of the sort of typical anti-cancer compounds of the cabbage family and so on but yeah i don't actually know what your invasive species are so that, that that'd be interesting to know
1: Yeah, um, the ones that I'm focusing on in my app are strawberry guava. So strawberry guava originates from southern, southeastern Brazil, um, Uruguay border. And it was brought to Volcanoes National Park and planted by a park worker in the early... Was it late 1800s or early 1900s? shoots I can't remember. But anyways, it now occupies over 300,000 acres in the Hawaiian Islands. And um, we can eat the fruits and the leaves are used for medicinal and, you know, you can use them to flavor water and, and do different, um, do different things with the leaves as well. The flower petals are edible. We have three different species of strawberry guava. And then the, uh, another one that I'm focusing on is Spanish needles, Biden's, pilosa. Pelosa, You might have that one there. Um, But there are three different species of Spanish needles. Like a pretty little daisy. Yeah, yeah, that's the Biden's Elba. Uh, Biden's Pelosa doesn't have the white ray florets that make it look like a little chamomile or, you know, daisy kind of thing. Uh, But, yeah, then we also have the the Biden's Elba and the Biden's Elba variety um, radiata. So and then we're focusing on the spiny amaranth, so amaranthus spinosis, but just on Maui alone, we have seven different species of wild amaranth. So I'm, you know, saying that any wild amaranth could be dropped as a pin um, in the app. And we're focusing on kahili ginger, uh, we have Somewhere around 70,000 acres of Kahili ginger alone, and then which is Hadichium gardinarianum, but there are two other very similar species that can be used in the same way by using the flowers, the flower buds, by using the new shoots and the rhizomes, um, which are Hedychium flavescens and Hedychium coronarium. So the white butterfly ginger and the yellow butterfly ginger. And the combination of those is hundreds of thousands of acres around the Hawaiian islands. Um, also focusing on java plum, that's the only one that has the single species, which is Sisygium cumuni. Um, And we can eat the fruits and we can utilize the leaves and the seeds are used in herbal medicine along with the bark. And um, so I think I got all five there. Those are the ones we're focusing on. Of course, there's several other invasives. But after my years of living here, those are the ones that I feel are found in the greatest quantity. um, And, you know, that access piece is also was also big. So, yeah, I mean, those plants are found in New Zealand and Australia and South Africa and the South Pacific and New Caledonia and, you know, Fiji and, um, several areas of Asia. Of course the amaranths are well, and then you've got Florida, Central America, um, tropical, subtropical parts of, of, um, south america and africa as well that have several of these plants so the range of these five even though the app is created here in hawaii the mapping system works around the globe and um yeah so those are the plants
0: what do you see in terms of using them um in any in any of these cases are you are you thinking in terms of pushing back the frontier of the amount of land that they're occupying, or is it purely to, to take them as they are and and use them? I mean,
1: well, I mean I would take the long term approach. Yeah. And that would be that, you know, in my generation, if we get the community behind this, when we get the community behind this in full yeah. force, we're going to be just stopping further seed dispersal. Gotcha. So Just by harvesting the fruits, as well as, for example, the flowers of kahili ginger they create. If you cut off the flower stock, then it's not producing the seed, which Mm -hmm. the Mm -hmm. birds and the rodents and whatnot are carrying around. So, I mean, that's huge just in stopping the line of seed dispersal. Then, you know, you're going to have subsequent waves of harvesters. You know, another generation are going to be like, oh, okay. I mean, I just don't think that we're going to be able to really have an understanding of how to interact with nature and come up with the answers that we need until people are actually interacting with nature. You know, like we can't come up with those answers until people are doing it. Yeah, there's those of us who are, you know, can offer these, these like, oh, oh, move in this direction. Yeah, dangle the carrot over here. Okay, come come over here. But until we collectively move in large scale ways, we're not gonna have, you know, that information made available to us until until that happens for people, until people are connecting with these plants and the plants are telling us. So, So, I mean, it's not gonna be for everybody. Not everybody can be a forager. You know, we need our artists, we need our mechanics, we need our, you know, our engineers but food is this this unifying component everybody eats and so these land management resource issues are are going to be are going to be a big deal and so i just feel like this first wave like what I can realistically say, like use my app and you're going to basically stop these from spreading further by removing seed, removing the seed.
0: Yeah. I think it's, it's fascinating describing because you're basically talking about releasing the herd, the human herd, making people aware, Hey guys, there's food over there. And then the herd descends because as you say, that's, that's, humans interacting with a whole plant population within an ecosystem and to my mind behaving like a species again instead of this disengaged thing where somebody has to bring everything to your door in a packet and there is no contact involved in that coming other than you spending some money and if you if you if you on the one hand look at that how messed up that is around food and then the modern paradigm of conservation whereby these conservation professionals make these kind of weird landscape scale interactions which are supposed to check and balance things and in in most cases what they're trying to recreate is an environment from the past where we used to be a species in our ecosystem we used to be actually engaging with land in order to produce resources and as a byproduct, we modified that environment to produce biodiversity now the conservationists want to recreate that rather than thinking, hey, what about if we behave like a species again and reengage re-engage with this environment? So I, I think it's fascinating that an environmental problem that's caused by our presence, we've accidentally introduced all these species, but you're advocating and, and now facilitating the remedy to be that we, okay, so this is, this is a byproduct of us being here, but let's just really engage properly and we'll find a way through this thing.
1: They'll tell us because they're sharing information with us. You know, we don't have to have that pressure of having to figure everything out. If we open to receiving the information, we open to that communication. Yeah, it's not like they're opening their mouths and speaking the same language, but they communicate. They communicate through vibration. They communicate through hormones. They communicate. They, They show behavior you know plants show behavior I mean and and let alone the whole mycorrhizal and the fungi you know that whole system as well I mean we are living in a dynamic intelligent planet Mm -hmm. and so when we I think it's just that opening and when people just are able to connect in they're going to receive the answers that they need
0: you know, I mean, I, I think just the very fact of interacting with, with another organism, regardless of whether you extend it to the space you're, you're going there of, of an intelligent being deliberately communicating, even if you, if you keep it at the, at the more kind of um, ordinary man-in-the-street level of I'm interacting with this living thing, and because I'm doing that, I'm actually paying attention. So I see what happens under these circumstances. I see what the response is to this and and what happens next and, and how this caused that part of the growth of the plant, um, developed into, you know, that in itself is communication. That's, that's, you, you are shaped and changed by, by, um, simply by being within the life cycle of that other living thing. You are, um, you are being spoken to, and you are being shaped and changed. And um, to that extent, it's a relationship. We, 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 and and I think the um, the thing about modern humans is, in a sense, we're lonely, because we used to have all these other persons, you, you know. So if I'm relating to another living thing, that that reciprocity there, there's, there's a there's a, a I cannot tell you the name of the tribe, but I was recently at a talk, somebody was trying to explain um, the animist perspective of other living things and even inanimate objects being, um, supposedly inanimate objects being persons. And I was struggling with some of it until we got to this, this uh, indigenous definition of a person or, or a living thing. It was kind of the same, same definition. And it's basically anything with which you can have a reciprocal relationship and then I got it. I thought, well, fine, I can accept that because I have a reciprocal relationship with wood. I've worked with wood. It has shaped me and I have shaped it. So that they, therefore in that sense, under that indigenous definition, wood is a person. So just going back to what I was trying to say there, you know, I think humans are lonely because we have all these persons in our lives. We used to deal with soil and, and rocks. And you know, if we were crafting on the sea, you know, we learned the waves and the wind and and all of that, and now we we don't talk to any of these people anymore, as it were <laughs> we just we, we're cut off from all of it. you know we have walls stopping the wind blowing our hair you know we even if we go on a on a boat it's a great big ocean going liner and yeah, I think uh, we we we're, we're, we're these dynamic organisms that that need other people if you if you follow what i mean
1: by. yeah. I- And we can see that model of cooperation as a necessary part of evolution. Mm. Everything. I mean, I think of our own human body as being, you know, less than 50 percent human DNA. We are a collective of organisms and it is only through that that reciprocity, that sharing, that respect, and that community that lifts us up to the next rung of our existence. And so that, you know, that is a very big lesson for humanity at this, you know, juncture of what seems like endless war and fighting and, you know, whatnot. And I think that we'll really, we're coming to learn that more and more through the science, of yeah, these yeah. hidden realms of microorganisms and and such, and of how cooperation is is the answer for evolution.
0: It is it is fascinating, as you say, that the the, the scientific um, exploration and and some of these technical tools that we have in terms of, of high powered microscopes and and Whatever else the tools are, I don't really know what microbiologists are, are, are getting up to, to be honest. But uh, but the fact is that science, scientific and, and technological tools are, are, as you say, opening up these unseen realms. So it's um, for me the the, the positive um, aspect. You know, the science and technology has opened up all kinds of disasters, but but. But, but i think it's i think it's because we've been like clumsy kids you know we've, we've discovered these tools and and we we ended up trashing the place but but just now we're beginning to to see actually these same tools can get us back in the very thing that's ended up almost getting us kicked out of the garden as it were It's almost like we, we, the, the earth is spitting us out we said hey don't do that you know <laughs> It's all science and technology that's given us the power to do these dreadful things. But the same things that have got us kicked out are actually are are to get us back in, because they enable us to 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 have this insight into these realms. That that um, that, that it's almost like we didn't look closely enough. You know, it's science enabled us to look, but we didn't look closely enough. Now we look. So when we didn't look closely enough, we said, "Aha." The universe is a machine, says Newton, you know, and he caught some things which were perfectly right, but he hadn't looked close enough. Now we look and we say, actually, the universe is communication, diversity, and, and a dance of lots of things moving together. No one's in control. There's no, there's no, there's no uh, control room of the universe where there's a machine that you can press the buttons and make this happen. There's just this dance that you can either enter or not enter. If you, if you see what I mean, it's, it's science that got into this mess, got us into this mess, but but, but now we're, we're, I think we're, we're getting the hang of it. You know? We can actually unveil the secrets of um, the universe in such a way as it enables us to to be participating again instead of what's happened recently, talking about last Couple of hundred years or ten thousand years, if we want to look from the origins of agriculture. But um, nowadays we have an opportunity to really, really. Um, I mean, I'm very hopeful for the for the for the uh, the future of our planet. Um, when I can think like this, when when you look at what's going on, you can just think, yeah, but it's too late and so on. Um, I flip between the two.
1: I like that it it isn't even necessarily up to us. I have an intern that is staying with me right now and um, when she first got here, I was like, okay, I'm putting you in charge of kefirs, you know, like water kefir ferments and wild fermentation stuff. And so she's really into the microbes and we have these great conversations and we're both sitting there and like you know, if our bodies are made up of less than 50% human DNA and, you know, maybe the poles are shifting or maybe there's the, um, you know, this climate change stuff that just like happens, like, oh my gosh, you know, we're going to see some radical changes. You know, maybe it's our microbes that all decide to move in a direction, you know, what if they all just are like, we're 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 changing and we're moving in this and then it's not even like us y- you know it is us because we're in cooperation with them but um you know there could be other life forms on the planet that just start behaving and operating on this planet in a totally different way um so anyways i am just th- toss that into the cauldron and stir it around <laughs>
0: Yeah, no, that's really good. I mean, you've got to ask yourself why when, when, when you have an intuition about something, you often feel it in your gut, right? And I've, I've been wondering about that. Maybe it's just your microbes that figured it no, out.
1: <laughs> your microbes want to survive. I mean, your microbes want to survive. So they're going to tell you, like, oh, that's not a good choice because our ecosystem, our this body, you know, that you're housing me in, Um, you know, that's not going to be a good choice. I mean, that's how I feel about intuition, that that is the microbes, that is the magic, the unseen realms of this microbial and things we don't even understand. I mean, I'm talking microbes, but like there's so much we just, you know, it's constantly, we're never going to know it all because it's so complex and it's always unfolding, you know. But I just toss that piece into the cauldron because, I feel like there is an opportunity for a radical fast change in humanity in our existence on the planet and that that could happen not only through everybody getting my app and you know starting to harvest wild foods but also through you know these other these other environmental factors that you know everything is pointing to it's not everything is pointing to it is shifting you know this this shifting that is happening um right now
0: you know i just i just think about the idea of lots of things um joining and and beginning to cooperate if you if you look at if you look at the origins of the universe you see that life emerges from lots of complex molecules suddenly getting together in even more complex ways and Bing life emerges from that, and then lots of neurons, nerve cells getting more complex and more diverse and joining in more and more diverse ways and Bing consciousness comes out, so I just think we 've got the pattern there that lots of diverse things becoming unified and and, and working together in in lots of amazing ways if we if we if we 've solved the puzzle that that 's what life is actually we we just need to have lots of really good quality reciprocal connections well now if humans did that on a on a on a global scale i do ask myself what would emerge if life comes from the chemicals consciousness comes from the neurons what would come from the humans you know if we if we consciously connect with land and and each other on a global scale i i i think something pretty well unforeseeable
1: (laughs) I mean it's just hard to even imagine and the possibilities are are so ah you know it's just it's really incredible. We are such unique species. I mean the human is this incredible, I mean we are just divine, it's incredible. So yeah, I get really excited about what is going to emerge, what mutations, what you know, what what we are to become
0: <laughs> so maybe we'll check in in um six months time or something and, and yeah see what's emerging
1: sounds great man looking forward looking forward i love our wild food community it's such a great community and thank you so much for inviting me on your show it's a real honor
0: well thanks for being here and and we'll put lots of stuff underneath the uh podcast to- Show people how they can connect with you and tap into what you do. All right,
1: great. Aloha.
0: Thank you for joining us for this week's World Wild podcast. And if you've enjoyed what you've heard, please do spread the word. You can review us through whatever podcast provider you're accessing us through, uh, and rate us there as well. And just generally tell your friends that you're in- enjoying what you're hearing. That would that would help us to be reaching more people. So yeah, that's it for this week's World Wild podcast.